Welcome back to the British Food History Podcast. It's me again, Dr. Neil Buttery. We arrive at episode three, the Foods of England Project with Glyn Hughes. Now, I'm going to tell you what's coming up in the episode. As usual, I'll tell you any news at the end, as well as kind of more stuff about this week's Easter eggs. But I just thought I'd mention, because I don't think I mention this hardly ever, my book, A Dark History of Sugar, which is published by Pen and Sod History, is out now and available everywhere in paper and digital formats. Plug over. Now, if you don't know what the Foods of England project is, you are going to be very pleased to have found out about it today. Glyn Hughes, well, he's essentially trying to collect and collate every traditional English recipe, no matter how common or obscure. He also fairly often deploys his detective skills to try and debunk various and many food myths. This is what the Foods of England website says. Glenn Hughes from Winster in the Derbyshire Peaks has been collecting England's food history for more than 20 years, using the British Library's astonishing newspaper collection from cookbooks going back to the 1300s and from snippets and notes from correspondents all over the world, the Foods of England project now brings together the original receipts. Yes, receipt is very, <laughs> is very insistent on that, not recipe. Recipe is a French word. It's now brought together the original receipts of over 3,000 dishes. From forgotten English pasta dishes of the 14th century to classics of today like Marmite and sticky toffee pudding. I travelled to Winster to speak to Glyn. It's a beautiful place. We had a shandy and some fish and chips in one of his locals called the Miner's Standard. It was very good. I interviewed him in actual person. Something I haven't done since season two when I went down to Gloucester for those eel episodes. Now, I made a couple of schoolboy errors whilst recording this conversation. I was kind of forgetting that my portable mics don't really capture sound in the same way as the one I use at home. And as a consequence, there's a bit of background noise. I know people kind of get a bit distracted by them, so I just thought I'd mention it before it starts. That said, I've cleaned it up as best as I can, and I don't think it'll matter anyway, because Glyn is such an engaging chap, and the chat we had was very interesting and informative. We talked about how and why Glyn started up the project in the first place, why British food has gained its bad reputation, uh, some examples of infamously bad English foods like tripe, the bizarre and obscure chicken dish Hindle Wakes, the origins of beef wellington, fake tea, haggis, chorley cakes and bakewell pudding, amongst other things. Oh, we also talked about oat cakes, something that cropped up in episode one when I was talking to Felicity Cloak. I feel perhaps I need to maybe do an episode or a couple of blog posts about oat cakes. Much more of a complex, diverse world than I ever knew. Anyway, let's get started. I'll be back at the end to tell you about any news and this episode's Easter eggs. What is the Foods of England project? The, the Foods of England project is, I mean, English food has got this reputation of not being very good. Mm, or it certainly had this reputation a few years ago of not being very good. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I tell you, I, I thought, actually, English food must be all right, really. Must be all right. So I'll find things out and travel around and I'll make a list of all the really interesting, local, fascinating, traditional foods because I thought there must be, I don't know. Oh, I bet there's a hundred that are worth writing down and finding the history of. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to list all 200 fascinating local English 
traditional dishes. I'm not particularly nationalistic, but you've got to start somewhere. So I just thought just English. Yeah. Anyway, having uh, I'm now up to I think about three and a half thousand different traditional foods that have been listed. These are uh, ones that are distinctly English, and where we've been able to trace the origin of them. So, how did you go about? compiling it was it an organic experience absolutely no idea i've absolutely no idea how i did it um i started putting bits on the net and then people start sending you emails and start writing letters you know on paper uh, and occasionally telephoning and things and saying oh my grandmother used to make so and so so i'm quite interested in this because i set off on a path that's led me to where i am now and i did not expect to be on the path I just did it because it was interesting and here I am and, you know, I'm very lucky in that what started off as a hobby, which became an obsession, is, well, almost entirely my job. I have to to do a few other things, (laughs) but um, it's it's pretty much my job now. And had I known where I'd end up, I'm not sure if I would have done it because I wasn't doing it as some kind of, I don't know, career trajectory. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I was doing it because it was interesting. Yeah. I was talking to Peter Atkins, who's a historian, uh, kind of a dairy, I suppose. Whoops! And he was saying, um, "There's just no cheese recipes. You know, all these kind of artisan cheeses, which are using old recipes. It's, it's usually a bit of a fib. And you know, um, really, what they're doing is taking French techniques, which were probably similar, and bringing them back because it's just all there, written out it's exactly what to do because they took it so seriously. Do you think that?" Um, do you think we don't have that? Do you think that's why we have, I think, a misconception that British food's bad? Because we don't seem to have that real, you know, that provincial cooking, I mean, I mean, it, it is high honour of those kind of foods. It's unquestionably the case, unquestionably the case, that Britain has retained a high degree of class distinction, which other European countries have thrown away. I mean, even now, even now. Um, and it's not been to our benefit. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a single um, intentionally lower-class food book until Ale- until a Frenchman, exactly the sort of person I'm talking about, Alexis Sayer, came along to Britain and wrote one in the 1840s, Shilling Cookery for the People. Yes, I know it. Well, which is full of ordinary foods intended for ordinary people, but given a little bit of a you know um, higher, not, not higher class, but given a bit of extra attention to detail. Immensely popular, sold a million copies of it today, apparently. Yeah, he was an amazing guy, wasn't he? I mean, the way he just transformed. Yeah. Well, just, didn't he invent the um, gas oven? I don't think he invented it. I think that might have been Flavel from Leamington who invented the gas oven, but certainly Soyo was one of the first to uh, install it in his kitchens. And as a true celebrity chef, he then opened the kitchens to the public, presumably for a fee. Come in and have a look at my amazing gas oven. He also, while we're eating, and I've got. Can you hear the sound of batter? He also provides us with the first ever uh, recipe for battered fish, as we know it now. Jewish fried fish. Jewish fried fish. Um, beef dripping in that? No, I don't think so. What? See, I suppose it's oh, perfect. Yes, he does say beef dripping. He says, yeah. use beef dripping, but the Jews use oil. Right. Because it's the perfect example, isn't it, of both fish and chips? I mean, batter's like, simplest is flour and water and salt. Yeah. A fish is a fish. <laughs> and fat is fat, I suppose. But we've had so many bad fish and chips in our... I mean, I love Manchester. I've lived there for 25 years, but you can't do fish and chips, bless it. You know, I've, I've, had, I've, had, I've had lots of bad fish and chips in Manchester. Fish and chips is very difficult to do. What, if people go to the Foods of England uh, project website, what can they find on there? Well, I, um, they can just simply type in anything to do with food or a famous chef or a cookbook or a place or a county. 
and it should provide them with the answer. And if I may say so, um, the website works fantastically quickly. None of those cookies or things, which is all because I coded the system behind it myself. And I'm rather pleased with it, actually, because it's dead simple. It doesn't try and do anything clever. And it works. It works. It's great. It works. Even when you're not um, searching, oh, for me anyway, if I, even if I'm not searching your website, I'm searching something else, it's usually the first, second or third. You're so sweet. You're so sweet. <laughs> um, I, don't know how many, I don't know how many visitors it gets, but it's, it's more than a million a month. Mm. Um, separate individual visitors. And I've not counted them for some while. Uh, I'm just thinking, before we move on to good stuff, mm-hmm. you did suggest... We're talking about really bad English food. Yeah. My personal failure, I think, was the Dredgeman's breakfast, so-called, uh, which was um, bacon and oysters, which ought to be all right, really. Mm-hmm. You'd think so. Mm-hmm. Bacon and oysters ought to be all right. You see, where we live in Derbyshire is as far from the sea as you can get, and I've never seen an oyster around here. No. Not live, anyway. So I used, <laughs> I used, um, I used jarred, a jar of pickled oysters, and I think probably didn't wash them properly, a bit of vinegar left so vinegary oysters with bacon yeah. was unspeakably horrible i'm pretty mistrustful of any pickled shellfish it reminds me of the um, specimen jars in my biology delicious I'll tell you what's a really good old pickle that we could do with reviving mm. excellent one is pickled radish pods if you've got some radishes mm-hmm. and just leave them to sprout eventually they'll produce radish pods radish yeah. seed pods yeah, yeah. on top and to pickle them you just drop them in uh, salty vinegar leave them there for a couple of weeks and you've got pickled radish pods yeah, uh, they not they don't have much of a flavour, but they have an irritating and irritating, have an entertaining crunch and a pop when you bite them, and I'd recommend them. One thing um, that I noticed, because uh, I also have a copy of your book, by the way. Thank you. Uh, the Foods of England, because it's, it's great to have that resource there, but sometimes you want to flick through something. Yeah. You can't do that on a website. Yeah. So I always think it's always important to have the book too and one thing I didn't appreciate because I, I wouldn't have searched for it were the excellent awful recipes oh, awful well, I'm, a, I'm an awful fan I'm a great awful fan I'm a great awful however fan. Um, some of the things because I thought I'd come across most things but um I think it's just only, I think maybe yesterday, the day before, I noticed ox lips. Yeah, we'll probably skip over ox lips, I think. Because you see a lot of uh, recipes for ox palate, which I guess must be the soft palate, which you can just about feel with your tongue and, and the rib um, of your mouth. Ox, ox cheeks as well, of course, quite delicacy now. Cheeks are good. But if we mention offal, mm-hmm. we'll just suspect not all your listeners are in the northwest of England, yeah. so we have to mention tripe. Oh, go on, then. The boiled, um, uh, the boiled stomach of particularly cows in England, which yeah. in Britain, not in other countries, in Britain is bleached to make it extra delicious uh, before boiling it. By extra delicious, do you mean worse? No, I mean extra delicious. Okay, it's I can't tell whether you've been sarcastic or not. Uh, it's, difficult to, it's difficult to comprehend what sort of part um, tripe played in the history of Lancashire. In particular, that is a good point. I mean, every single town, village had a tripe shop. For had a tripe shop, they? indeed. There's still one or two going. There's certainly one in Oldham. Uh, there's one in Wigan. There's still tri- I think there's two shop tripe shops in Wigan. I think there's still one in Bolton. But oh, there was a chain of tripe restaurants. There was UCP, United Cattle Products, who okay. had more than I think 200 tripe restaurants all over Lancashire. Of which, and the, there was Vose's tripe restaurant in Wigan, which had seating for 200 and its own ladies' orchestra. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, some of them were quite fancy, weren't they, these tripe restaurants? Yeah. It's very difficult to believe that this is not a joke. It is actually mm-hmm. true. You were talking earlier about um chicken thing. 
chicken thing. Hindle Which is such a weird name. Yeah, yeah. Hindle Waits. So I cooked that because the way I get, got into all this thing was cooking all the recipes in, in English food by Jane Grigson. And Hindle Wakes is in there. So I had to cook it whether I liked it or not. Um, it is, first of all, supposed to originate in Lancashire. And uh, here we are, well, not in the northwest anyway. Uh, here we are in Derbyshire, where we've just had our Wakes Festival, our holiday period is the Wakes. And Hindle is supposedly um, somewhere in Lancashire, though nobody ever, has ever heard yes. of a place called Hindle. Um, I went to school in Hindley, and we'd never, mm-hmm. certainly never heard of a dish called Hindle Wakes there. And the idea that we would have made a boiled chicken stuffed with prunes <laughs> yeah. and served with lemon sauce is beyond preposterous. Mm. The one that I did, it was served cold, and the lemon right. sauce, it was glazed with the sauce. And precisely how unpleasant was it? Really, really quite unpleasant. It was fine once you scraped up all the horrible lemon yeah. goo. There's a nice poached chicken inside. Don't eat the stuffing, don't eat the... All the stuff that took you ages, don't eat that. Yeah. Because um, my when I first spoke to people uh, living in America, got them over for my little dinner parties, they thought all we ate was boiled meat. And when I started looking through cookbooks, it's like, oh, they seem to be quite right. There's so many boiled meat recipes. But it took me a while to realise boiled actually means gently poached. Yeah, there is a couple of confusions there from old cookie books. Another yeah. one they get from old cookie books is that old recipes were very sweet and sour. They put a lot of sugar on things. But remember that up until, really, up until sort of the end of the 1600s, sugar was very, very expensive and sugar was treated as a spice. Yeah. So you just put a little tiny sprinkle on, as you might still with stews. But let us return, if we may, to Hindle Wakes. Hindle Wakes, yes. this so-called Lancashire dish, which nobody in Lancashire has ever heard of. It appears to originate with the food writer Florence White, who yes. wrote a cookery book in 1932, in which she included Hindle, this Hindle Wakes. Good things in England? Good things in England, yeah. I think, or made-up things in England, um, in, to way? some extent. Yeah. Um, it's funny enough, that had been a play, a very good play by Stanley so Horton, I think, yeah, called, so Hindle, called Hindle Wakes. Yes, sir. Um, I, excellent play, across that. Um, yeah. which involves a mill owner's daughter, but, you know, doesn't every Lancashire play involve a mill owner's mm-hmm. daughter? Uh, and I pre- presume that's where she just made this up from, because it's drivel. Uh, from start to finish. So Hindle Wakes, made up nonsense. Um, beef Wellington. Must be something to do with the Duke of Wellington, mustn't it? You'd have we, thought we so. We all know that. Must we be something to do with the Duke fact. of Wellington. It could be possibly because it's like a Wellington boot. It's it's beef inside yeah. a casing, which is a bit like a Wellington boot. It's the most expensive cut. Yeah, it's the most expensive it's... cut. So where on earth does it come from? Well, you'd think, once again, we control through cookery books through the 19th century and indeed the voluminous writings of uh, the Duke of Wellington. Yes. Uh, uh, but no mention whatever of anything like that. And we can trace Beef Wellington all the way back to 1965. 1965. 1965. Oh, it's because, the Plowman's lunch all over again. Yeah. Beef Wellington is Buffon Croute. It's the traditional French recipe for Buffon Croute, absolutely unchanged. And Julia Childs, the American um, TV uh, cook, did a series called Mastering French Cuisine, Mastering French Cookery, I think. And she did uh, told you how to make... Um, Buffon Crute, but she called it Beef Wellington. But the recipe she gives is precisely the standard Beef Wellington one, and it definitively originates there. So it's basically French renamed. It's simply, I mean, it's not even altered. Um, it is absolutely... Yes, because the stuff that you put around the... Because I mean, it is duck, it's a duck cell, isn't it? Absolutely. Lots of English so recipes have got ducelles in and, and Madeira sauce. I mean, come on. Yeah. The one defining factor of English food traditionally is that it's, um, it's very, very plain and simple. While we're on fakeries, while we're on fakeries, fake tea. Fake tea? Fake tea, yeah. Um, Earl Grey tea. 
generally assumed to be something or other to do with Earl Grey, the Prime Minister. Yes. Who, uh, yes. Whose Reform Act uh, allowed lots more... Ooh, I was going to say whose Reform Act allowed lots more people to vote, but more correctly, whose Reform Act took the vote off women. It seems to be, and I'll skip the details, but it seems to be uh, that if you take poor quality tea and add a small amount of oil and bergamot to it, you can make it taste like really high-quality tea. And there's actually a record in the early 19th century of somebody being prosecuted for having done that, uh, for flavouring the tea with bergamot, without actually saying publicly that that's what they've done. Yes, well, they're trying to make it taste more like Darjeeling or yes. something. Yes, so you can simulate it by putting the zest of um, bergamot oranges in it. So you can make the, your cheap tea sound like fancy teas. Now, it seems, well, each to their own, it seems to be the case that one firm who did this commercially, not fakery, but, you know, openly flavoured tea, was a company called Grey's of Morpeth, and they sold Grey's tea, Grey's mixture, and there's some advert, loads of adverts for it. Grey's tea, nothing better, available at the Red Canister Warehouse in Morpeth. And then at some time, I think in the 18... something or other, uh, Grey's disappeared from the record, and the adverts reappear from a firm in London selling exactly the same advert, selling Grey's tea. And then after Earl Grey himself died, they started calling it the Earl Grey's tea. Uh, so I'm pretty sure nothing this, at all to do... Yeah, the story I heard, which I guess is the one that's banded around, was I think he was giving it as a gift from a visit, somebody yeah, visiting... The, the problem is there are a number of different stories, you yeah. see. One story is that he was given it in India by Hamaja Raja, as a reward for saving his son from a tiger. Now, I must say, a packet of tea doesn't seem a particularly sparkling reward uh, for saving your son from a tiger. Also, Earl Grey never went to India, so I went never. So it doesn't, you know, particularly seem very likely. Similar one to do with China, drivel. Yeah, and there's a Lady Grey tea as well, isn't there? Somebody, oh. made, you know, somebody made that up in the 1960s. While I'm in full flow now, yes, and you're not going to stop me now. It's okay. You're not going to stop me. There's two things I'd really like to revive. Oh, go on. I'd really like to revive. One is salmagundi. Yes, I've made a salmagundi. Have you? Uh-huh. Fantastic. Yes. Simply a plate of gobbets. You just have a, a plate of small gobbet size. That's, you know, the right size to fit in your mouth. Bits yeah. of whatever you it's want. It's a good word, is gobbet. It's an excellent word, yeah. gobbet, isn't it? You know what it means, that I'm just looking up. Yeah. Just the shape of the word. Yeah, gobbet. I think uh, you can put in a salmagundi. I think, I think Hannah Glass says whatever thou wilt. Yeah. So you can have some pieces, perhaps of potato or ham, uh, pieces of vegetable, crudités, some things cooked on top. But it's a, co- a cold plate of gobbets. You should yeah. be able to go into pubs and restaurants and say, or oh, perhaps you could, I think you should be able to go into restaurants and say, right, your meal will be a few minutes. Would you like a salmagundi while you're waiting? Or would you like a salmagundi to share? Or we do individual salmagundo, I think would be the correct term. Yeah. Yes, it's like, I guess, the equivalent of going into a, an Indian restaurant and getting all the poppadoms out, Absolutely. you know. So you should look up salmagundi on the Foods of England, where I'm ashamed to say there's a video of me salmagundicating uh, and making one. Oh, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. Please do, please do. The other thing I think we ought to revive is English service. Because don't forget, meat, the idea of meat and two veg, which we've just had, we've just had meat yes, and two veg, yes. uh, brought to you on a plate, really plated up in the kitchen. That's Russian service. Yes. Uh, pretty, pretty, there's also uh, old French service, which is where each diner is given an empty plate and then the waiter comes around and says, would you like some sprouts? Um, traditional English service is everything, all the stuff is put in plates on the table all at the same time. And everybody has got their own plates and you just help yourself to what you want. So if you want to have baked beans with uh, bananas and custard, then absolutely you can. 
no problem at all. If you're on a big portion, you have a big one. If you're on a small one, you can have a small one. If you're on a vegetarian one, you've got nothing but meat. And all the English, early English cookery books tend to have little plans in the back. Yes, they do. Elizabeth Raffles got yes. a great one on hers. Yeah. Now, you see, people think that's really weird. But I, my argument is we all do it at Christmas. We do. We go from sweet to savoury. It's, it's, it's how you can carry on eating, I think, by switching from sweet to savoury. So we're doing that without realising. Okay, it's not set up... We're not all sat well, around it, but we're, we're, but we're doing we, the same, we're eating in the same way. We still very often do Old English service at Christmas, even if you don't realise you're doing it. Everything in different dishes and casseroles oh, down the table. middle of the table, yeah. Yes. Uh, and the meat at one end that's carved by the master of the household uh, and, and parceled out. So that's two things we should bring back. I've found so many delicious things. You might turn your nose up at this one, but um, steak, oyster, kidney pudding. You um, still need to come I, back. I'd give it a try. I'd give it a try. That's one of the... One of the times, I think it was, it was one of the first recipes where I cooked it from Jane Griggs' book. Because I started doing it because I didn't know anything about English food. I was doing it because I, because I didn't know about it. So it was such a revelation to have this food. We're all turning our noses of oysters. My fa- I never ate shellfish as a kid. And I put up the courage to put it, to get a gobbit and put it in my gob. And it was just so delicious. Yeah. Like, why... Why aren't these being sold everywhere? Um, because people are used to what they're used to, aren't they? Uh, and they don't like change. Having said that, there's always some people out there who are interested in trying things which are a bit new, or a bit new to them anyway. Uh, and it's they who I think we can build on. Having said that, while, while we're here, after we, we, we you, uh, you were mentioning earlier on here being in the northwest, riddle bread. Riddle bread, yes. Riddle bread. Interesting riddle bread because yeah. it's mystery to you. Yeah, riddle bread, have a cake, clap bread. That's yeah. another of these lower class things that didn't really get properly recorded, so we're not quite sure no. what it was. But it's well, some sort of oat flatbread, yes, which was cooked and then possibly eaten fresh or dried out on racks over the top of the fire to form a, 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 a sort of Scandinavian type crisp bread. Mm-hmm. But I've certainly been in one pub in North Yorkshire where they've got riddle bread racks oh, okay. on the top of the fireplace, um, still there. And the, probably the last remnants of it, and we will go there after we've gone to this pub, is the village shop in Winster here. Mm-hmm. We'll sell you um, Derbyshire oat cakes. Oat cakes. It's a bit like a pieclet. Uh, yeah, bigger mm. than a pieclet. Saying that, hmm. a pieclet's like a crumpet, but it's not yeah. been baked in its little rings. It's like a yeah. pancake with holes yeah. in it. Yeah, like that, but bigger and flatter. Yeah. Uh, and still very popular here. They'll have literally piles of them. In the shop. I've never been quite sure what you're supposed to do with them, but there you go. I mean, I was speaking to my dad. My dad's 90. And he's grown up in Pudsey, which is the town I'm from. It's between Leeds and Bradford, between Leeds and Bradford, West Yorkshire. And I've never, I'd never heard of riddle bread or even of oat cakes being a thing in Yorkshire at all. I was born in '77, but my dad remembers it. And he remembers them drying, and he doesn't. And they just, they've just disappeared from his generation. I mean. He's quite an old dad, I suppose. He was 45 when I was born, so he was kind of a generation ahead. And they just seem to have just disappeared completely. Yeah, on the subject of the northwest of England and porridge, immediately obviously makes us, moves us to that uh, well-known um, uh, uh, northwest English delicacy of uh, haggis. Uh, it, <laughs> yes. is, it is beyond dispute mm-hmm. that the first reference to haggis in the English language is in Lancashire. It's in a very strange middle, medieval verse cookery book written in verse. Um, and there is, I mean, surely there is, a, there is a, a, at least one 
probably several actually, but there's one quite distinguished um, Lancashire Haggis producer um, still going strong in Chorley. Chorley, there's a place, Chorley Cakes. Chorley Cakes. You, you, do you know Chorley Cakes? Are you familiar with Chorley Cakes? I am familiar, but people listening maybe aren't. Yeah, you're perhaps familiar with um, Eccles Cakes. Yes. Eccles Cakes, yep. uh, which is sort of a pastry um, uh, things. Flattened circular pastry cases filled with buttery, sugary currants. Yeah, um, it's usually a flaky. It's or a usually puff pastry, a flaky pastry, pastry sprinkled with sugar. Yeah, yeah. and quite high, relatively high baked. Um, Chorley cakes are bigger, flatter, and have got uh, more short crust, not flaky or puff pastry. More short crust. It's pastry. plainer. Thing. Yeah, and in my there's more stodge there. So in my in my opinion, that is much more excellent. Chorley cakes, you, you will find chorley cakes in supermarkets and shops all over England, mm-hmm. here and there. Um, if you go to chorley itself, you may find the chorley cakes are different. Um, there's two or three bakers in the town producing. them. Okay. I've seen them in Berry Market. Right. Uh, now, yeah. how big were they? They were about maybe eight or nine inches, right. 20, 20 centimetres. Like getting chorley. Right. Yeah. Okay. The ones you get packed up. Uh, and in supermarkets, little tiny oh, ones. little tiny things, yeah. yes, that maybe just five centimetres yeah, wide. About the size of sort of big biscuit. Uh, but the ones you get in Chorley, and perhaps delivered from there to Berry, are these great big flat ones. Because the yes, famous I was surprised one, to see them. They're very good. The famous one for being different is just a stone's throw from where we are here in Bakewell. Whereas, of course, Bakewell tart yes. is one thing. But when you go to Bakewell itself, it's yeah. not Bakewell tart, it's Bakewell pudding. Bakewell pudding, yes. And there are at least, well, I keep miscounting, but I think there are at least currently five bakeries in Bakewell, <laughs> all of whom are the genuine, original, first ever uh, Bakewell pudding shoppy. Yes, it's been on my list to do a podcast episode about them, but for some reason I never get around yeah. to doing it. Um, unfortunately... I'm pretty confident not one of them actually is the original uh, Bakewell uh, pudding baker, and none of them actually anymore use the original Bakewell pudding recipe. Oh, okay. So they, 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 they've kind of ended up diverging yeah, themselves. themselves. So it's like a... Um, it's, it's, it's a brilliant is marketing it a puff, Is it a puff pastry with it's raspberry jam? pastry base uh, with jam... And then a mysterious confection. Yes, it's just a very sugary, very sugary sort of. I don't know how it's. Made. I think it might be seven. I think it might be seventeenth century. The only reason I say it is that kind of sugary filling. Yeah. I think it's John Evelyn or maybe Robert May has a sweet meat cake. Sounds like the sort of thing. And it's just lots of chopped up candied things. But then the pour on this basically a mixture of butter and sugar over the top, and I reckon it's the same stuff. Right. So it's. I reckon. It, I would say it's certainly 17th century. But the thing is, before um, 18th century, it'll just been called um, pudding. one pudding, another good pudding, a really yes. nice pudding. They didn't really have names. Yes. That was kind of. Yes. It, they were often invented. Yes. The food. The Foods of England website has the universal table of steamed puddings in it. Oh, good. We've got a gigantic list. I'm a of massive. All thing. the traditional. Puddings, uh, of which there are, um, I, mean, I, I don't know where we're up to, a thousand different ones. I mean, you'll be familiar with, obviously, uh, Brown George pudding, which is made with ginger and golden syrup. Canterbury pudding, which is egg sponge pudding with lemon and brandy. Uh, Duke of Buckingham's pudding, which has got raisins, nutmeg and ginger. Eve's pudding, that's a nice one. that has got chocolate apple, one. currants and citrus yes. peel. Exeter dick. One last question. Yeah. Uh, you got the Food of England's website you have the book, which is excellent, by the way. So I haven't, I haven't even had to flick through it. I've got it there in my bag. Um, you've also got the, uh, the um, is it Forgot Lost Food of Christmas? Yeah, Christmas, Christmas. And that's very popular at Christmas. Yeah. I did, actually, I had, that one had one of the uh, 
uh, it's great fun, isn't it, to get really bad reviews on Amazon and places like that. And uh, the uh, what mood I'm in. The Lost Feast of Christmas <laughs> got one of the. Uh, somebody gave it one star, right? Uh, because they said uh, this book is full of recipes, mostly for mincemeat. Yeah, that's correct. That is because it is about. Um, the English traditional yeah. Christmas. So There's nothing it is, to eat apart from dried fruit and different sorts lard. of dried fruit. Yeah, that is. So, got. what the, did you expect in a book about? How fish? funny! I think it was an American that, so they probably wouldn't have right. wouldn't have realised. Homemade mincemeat is delicious, though. Have you got anything else? Well, coming it's up? funny you should mention that because I'm working day and night. I'm up at three o'clock in the morning now and can't sleep at all. Working on the um, working on the very surprising history of fish and chips. Okay. I thought um, fish and chips is interesting, isn't it? Because there is nothing more British than fish and chips, is there? There is, not. there is nothing more British than fish and chips. And in fact, if you put the phrase "there is nothing more British than fish and chips" into a well-known computer internet search engine, it finds I think more than a thousand pages with exactly that phrase. There is there's nothing more British than fish and yeah. chips in it. Incidentally, if you put in there's nothing more English than fish and chips, right. it finds three. Oh, thanks, Glyn. Now, he talked a lot more about fish and chips in that conversation, but I kind of just cut it down because I really want to get him on again and talk about it in more detail. Um, I've left a link to his bookshop page on his website in the show notes uh, for you. If you want to check out the fish and chips book or any of his other books, all very good. There's a link to the Foods of England website because it's really got to be seen to be believed. There is so much on there. All the recipes, the cookbooks. There's a little magic menu that gives you random recipes, which is really good fun. Uh, Of course, you can search for all of the foods we've discussed today. They've all got their own page themselves. And there's also a link to Glyn's Salamagundi video in the show notes there too. Um, I've got a bit of news. I've been working behind the scenes on a new BBC Radio 4 programme called One Dish. And it's hosted by the chef, Andy Oliver. The premise is Andy interviews uh, a different special guest every episode and they bring with them their favourite dish, hence one dish. And Andy talks with them about the history and the science behind the dish. My job was doing the research and the odd little bit of script writing here and there. It's good fun and there's some really good guests. And it was great fun working on it too. It starts on the 31st of August at 9.30am. Radio 4, and it will go out every week. But you can access it now as a podcast. And again, I've left a link to its page on the BBC Sounds website in the show notes. Go check it out. So yes, I was saying, there's two Easter eggs from today's episode. In the first one, some more myth debunking. This time, the famous or infamous Brown Windsor Soup. And in the second one, we talk about that very famous English invention, Worcester sauce. And also a pie that comes from a town that doesn't exist. Now, if you want to support the podcast and blogs, become a subscriber. You get access to the aforementioned Easter eggs page with loads of extras now from past episodes. The deleted scenes and extra bits, the extra mini season and the extra blog posts just for subscribers. You can find those by searching for the keyword term premium content. Stuff's being added all the time. To start a subscription, go to the support, the blog and podcast tab on the website, britchfoodhistory.com. A subscription is just £3 a month and everything I receive goes back into making more content. If you don't want to do that, well, you could just treat me to a one-off virtual coffee or virtual pint. But just simply by downloading and listening, you're supporting. So there's no pressure to hand over your cash. But 
please, if you can, like and subscribe and tell friends and family and to leave comments, reviews and ratings. I thank you in advance. To keep tabs on what I'm doing, go to BritishFoodHistory.com or find me on social media. On Twitter, I'm at Neil Buttery. On Instagram, I'm at Dr, that's D-R, underscore Neil, underscore Buttery. And as I always say, if you've got any questions, comments or queries about anything from this episode, or indeed any episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact. Until next time, cheerio.